Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Will Begley. Will holds a PhD from UNC Chapel Hill in the field of classics, and he is an extraordinary high school Latin instructor for Thales Academy Rollsville. Will, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thanks, Josh. I don't know what having a PhD has to do with this particular podcast topic, but if that's the minimum requirement to get on Optimistic Curmudgeon, I think it was all worth it. So far, I have a couple of guests who do not have PhDs, and they are uh, qualified by virtue of starting an institution, writing a book, or being in some way otherwise like very notable. Man, uh, you're setting this bar too high for me. You're gonna, I'm gonna have to be in like the the season one outtakes or something. No, no, no. You, uh, you definitely are in season one, but you're not an outtake. I think you're gonna be episode twelve. Uh, one of the the reasons, like, so. I mean this in all seriousness, uh, most of this show has a very definitive, we're looking at this particular issue that people are confused about, and uh, I want them to hear from this expert, like the, uh, the Robert Pondicio episode was one of those where he had a lot of expertise in school policy and had a particular point of view about why anti-racism actually harms students. The episode with Paul Mueller about uh, modern monetary theory was something like that. Both of those were really high content driven. Uh, it helped a lot that both of those guys had the background to be able to speak to that. This mm -hmm. episode is going to be something rather different. Um, uh, I'm glad we're already talking about this because it matters hopefully for, for our listeners. Uh, one of the pillars of the show is about is conversations around great books. So each season, I'm looking for one or two episodes that are really where I get together with somebody who is really good at reading books. Uh, that that's a really specific skill set that honestly I don't think we talk enough about. Reading a book is not just a matter of seeing the words come across your eyes and then processing it and breaking it into phonemes and all those things. It's a really complicated. Uh, amalgamation of skills, insights, and life experiences where you perceive what's happening in this text and you see meaning in that text in some way. Uh, you, Will Begley, are one of the best people I know to talk with about Shakespeare plays in particular. Uh, you're incredibly well-read and you somehow bring all of that to bear into everything that you read. So uh, for just a quick moment, I want to kind of set up our conversation about Shakespeare and uh, we'll, we'll get to it. So uh, listeners, you hopefully are aware that uh, for at least about 400 years, William Shakespeare has been considered the greatest English playwright. In the English-speaking world, he really has nobody else that comes close as far as a universally read uh, uh, author. Uh, part of his greatness lies not just in writing some really fantastic plays that each generation enjoys, but that Shakespeare had a unique ability, to, or I, I suppose unique understanding of human nature, such that he was able to see things that were perennially true. So every generation has read him since he wrote these plays and has performed his plays, in part because they help each generation understand the complexities of what it means to be human. So today, uh, Will Begley and I will be discussing one of Will Shakespeare's lesser known plays, uh, measure for Measure, and what it offers the 21st century in terms of ethical living. Also, uh, just in case this becomes uh, something on today's show, I should point out that uh, Will Begley is a new father. We might hear from his son, Paul, on this episode. Paul may join us as a burgeoning Shakespeare critic, so I have no doubt that he will grow up to love literature as much as his parents do. With that... He's a critic. I don't know if he's a Shakespeare critic in particular. But. <laughs> well, uh, with that, uh, we'll start us off with a quick plot summary, because I, I suspect I'm not alone in not knowing Measure for Measure, as well as some of the Bard's other works. This was my first time in this play. What, what should our listeners know about this play in order to understand the rest of our conversation? Well, it depends. What's the podcast uh, policy on spoilers? It, the play has been around for roughly 400 years. If people were going to go out and read it, they would have. At this point, I'm assuming our listeners are either rabid Shakespeare fans really surprised that this episode is about Shakespeare or are hopefully liking our banter enough that they stick around. So spoil away. Well, I, I do hope, even if I spoil this, that people go out and read Measure for Measure because I think it's one that even Shakespeare fans haven't necessarily read, um, but I think it's well worth the read. Um, the basic plot is uh, it's set in Vienna, which has sort of descended into this, into this lawlessness, especially when it comes to sexual ethics. Um, where there are all these laws on the books that apparently include the death penalty for fornication, but they haven't been enforced in 19 years. Um, and so the Duke of Vienna realizes that this is the case, and he decides he's going to, he's just going to vanish for a while, and he's going to put his, his deputy in charge. 
Um, and his deputy is a guy named Angelo, who, as the angel part of his name suggests, is this sort of perfect being. Everybody, everybody seems to think like there's a there's even a discussion later in the play about whether he's even born the normal way or if he was if he you know if he just sprang forth spontaneously from the from the sea or something. He's a uh, he's he's so perfect that that no one can can really understand him as a as a human, and it's his job to sort of suddenly start enforcing these laws. So early on in Angelo's tenure as a deputy. Um, a guy named Claudio ends up impregnating his fiance Juliet and they're like right about they're almost married and the only reason they're not married yet is Juliet is still waiting on a dowry from some friends of hers that don't seem to approve of Claudio um, so Claudio impregnates impregnates Juliet and is sentenced to death by the deputy Angelo um, so while Claudio is sitting there on death row word gets around to his sister Isabella who's one of the central characters of the play uh, Isabella is just about to enter a convent and she is very hardcore about it. The first thing we hear her saying is she's asking the mother superior of this convent she's about to enter if, if the rules aren't maybe just a little bit lax at this convent. She clearly is is set up as this sort of, she's countercultural in Vienna. She is somebody who really, really believes in um, Christian ethics and wants to live her life by them. Um, and something that is very important to her is, um, is her virginity. Um, so she, when she finds out her brother's on death row, she's persuaded to go and, uh, and ask for him to be, to be pardoned, even though she agrees that what he's done is bad. Um, she, she goes to Angelo and, um, and tries to persuade him. And the, the basis of her persuasion is that if you personally can find nothing in your own heart that resembles Claudio's fault, then go ahead and put him to death. But if you find some likeness between yourself, if you find yourself subject to the same temptations, consider having mercy on him. And it's this really, it's this incredible tour de force of, uh, of rhetoric in this passage. And she and Angelo go back and forth. And wouldn't you know it by the end of the scene, Angelo, who has, you know, again, he's the most passionless person. He's fallen madly in love with Isabella, who's about to become a nun. And so basically in his first, in his first temptation, Angelo falls completely um, and he starts he starts plotting and machinating to sleep with Isabella and he, he passes an offer to her and he says, if you sleep with me, then I'll pardon your brother. Isabella is shocked by this offer. She goes and, and tells her brother mostly as a way of saying, can you believe that this is what he wants me to do? Sorry, sorry, bro. You're, <laughs> you're going to have to die. And her brother's like, yeah, that's really bad. But would you mind maybe just this one time, just this one time. And Isabella is horrified. And so it looks like things are headed towards this catastrophe. But then wouldn't you know it, this this friar shows up this this catholic uh this catholic brother this this man in order shows up who is in reality the duke who has not in fact left he's just described he's just disguised himself as a as a friar and he advises isabella um he he comes up with this with this plan in order to kind of cut to the chase the the root of the plan is isabella will pretend to sleep with angelo but in her place, she's going to send Angelo's old jilted fiance who who comes from this sort of cd past that angelo um, has not let get around very much. You know, it's a it's not well known about Angelo. So Isabella sends uh, the old fiance in her place, Mariana. Angelo thinks he slept with Isabella, and then he goes ahead and has Claudio executed anyway. Luckily, the Duke in disguise is there to prevent this as well. Claudio is saved, but um, it all heads towards this great uh, scene of revelation at the end, where in front of everyone, Angelo's faults are revealed. It's revealed that Claudio is not has not been executed after all. Um, and everyone lives happily ever after. Um, and I think that's probably as well as I can do without spoiling some of the other good twists, but that's the, uh, that's the basis. I think that's a very, that's a very effective summary. Did I read this correctly that Isabella marries the Duke at the end? Is that right? Yeah, And that's, that's, I think one of the more, that's something that always throws people for a loop when they've just finished the play, because she doesn't say a word about it. And it's really, it's two lines that allude to this, but yeah. The Duke and Isabella are off to get married at the end of the play. I have some opinions about this that I'm pretty sure are not orthodox among, among Shakespeare scholars, but that's one of the prices I pay for not actually being a Shakespeare scholar. It's it's probably a worthwhile worthwhile choice to not actually be a Shakespeare scholar. It, it, I'm pretty sure the, the deeper you get into Shakespeare scholarship, the further away you get from actually enjoying Shakespeare. Now, yeah, that, that part threw me for a loop as well, because it, it definitely was one of the odder spots where I felt like I think the Duke sort of informed her that she was marrying him. He didn't mm -hmm. really ask. He just mm -hmm. said it as if it was a fate accompli. And mm -hmm. there it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, and I find that's, that's one of many things about the Duke's actions in the play that's really puzzling. It's, 
uh, a lot of people come in guns blazing uh, for a discussion of venture from venture. They come in guns blazing against the Duke because they find that everything he does is sort of suspect. He he's a trickster. I mean, he's he's in disguise for most of the play. He even the people he's working with to help he deceives. He doesn't tell Isabella that her brother isn't dead. He lets Isabella believe that her brother is dead for for quite a quite a significant part of the end of the play. He hears confessions even though he's not in fact a priest. At one point towards the end, uh, he forgives the sins. He forgives the earthly sins of someone. He does a lot of stuff that is extremely puzzling, and it's it's that it's puzzling over that that sort of maybe I should table this to later. But this has led to my reading of the play, where I think this is this play is really an exploration of divine justice more more even than human justice. But we can get there. <laughs> that's uh, that's my own peculiarity about this play. Oh yeah, we definitely need to get there because I I remember being struck by one line where. Uh, basically, I think it's it's when the Duke as the friar is setting up Mariana and Angelo, and he pretty much says, you know, it's okay, because these two can go spend the night together, because they're basically married anyway, they just haven't hit the ceremony yet. It was a very non-priestly thing to say. And right. like every pastoral... and he's, he's not alone in the Shakespearean canon for, you know, for friars who are not behaving in a very priestly way. I mean, there's Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet, but I do have to say, when it comes down to the to the weird friars in Shakespeare plays. This one is my favorite. <laughs> weird friars in Shakespeare plays. That sounds like a great Jeopardy category to uh... Yes, yes. There's only about three entries, but yeah, it would be good. Well, I was very intrigued. A few weeks ago, we were talking about what kind of episode could we do for, for season one on the Optimistic Curmudgeon. I remember telling you that uh, some of the previous parameters that have been on our, our, our other episodes were, were not present with this show. We can get into some slightly darker content and discuss some of the more adult themes and so on that are present in Shakespeare. And without missing a beat, you were like, measure for measure. We have to do measure for measure. So I've now read the play and I will freely admit I enjoyed the play, but I don't love this play nearly as much as you do. Um, walk us through why you love this play. What is it about this play that just speaks to you? So I should say I also didn't love it on a first go round, um, but I've, I've loved it more and more successively each time through. And this I don't know how many times through this is now, but every single time I read it, I think, man, I think even I've been underrating this and I like this play more than most people I know. But um, in broad strokes, I would say what makes this play good is what makes a lot of Shakespeare plays good. And that's that philosophy is no fun to read. I'm sorry, Josh. I know this is a point we've gone back and forth on, but it's no fun to just sit down and read straight up philosophy. And there's a reason that uh, Plato writes dialogues and not just a treatise. And there's a reason when Aristotle writes a treatise, he apologizes at the end for not making it a dialogue. We are humans who, who we work through the particular, we work through the concrete. We want to see drama. We want to see actual characters in front of us with things happening to them and things at stake. At stake, we don't want to see uh, abstract ideas. So this play is the best exploration of the conflict between justice and mercy, both on the human level and again, as I'm as I'm tempted to argue every time I read this play on the divine level as well. Really what it is, is it's giving you this thought experiment, but it's a thought experiment where you really care about the people involved. Is the Duke at fault for the fact that Vienna has descended into the state of anarchy. It seems like it. He says he is. He, he has these beautiful speeches about, you know, how, how bad it is, you know, the, the speech about, you know, when, when the baby beats the nurse and, mm -hmm. and uh, quite a thwart goes all decorum. He has these great speeches about how bad things are because he's let the laws go unenforced. But then Angelo comes in and instantaneously we see that there's something wrong. There's something very precise and exact and correct about what he's doing. And yet there's something humanly wrong about what he's doing. He's enforcing too strictly, too suddenly. And so we run into this, this conflict between justice and mercy. And then Shakespeare does this great job of, of adding the dramatic elements to to turn that into a real play that you are gripped by that really that really on stage this really kind of pulls you through um, and you really want to find out what happens and then beyond that I just find the the poetry in this play and the rhetoric really really impressive there's a couple of scenes that I think are just there for Shakespeare to show off there's a part where the duke is you know pretending to be a friar and he's comforting Claudio in prison and he gives this beautiful speech about why we should not be attached to our lives and by the end of it, Claudio is convinced he's ready to die. Everybody in the audience is convinced we're all ready to die. It's like life sounds terrible because he's so he's he's gone through this whole kind of stoic argument about how you should be ready to give up life. And then maybe a hundred lines later, maybe not even, 
Claudio gives this impassioned speech when he realizes there might actually be a way out and he could live. He gives this incredible speech about the terrors of death and all of a sudden they're right back for us. And it's just, you know, he can convince us in both directions. When Angela and Isabella are going back and forth about justice, they're each convincing in their own way, even though you know Isabella is good and you see that Angelo is turning bad, you, you still are convinced by both of them. Well, that, that's really helpful because I think I can I, I resonate with that. Uh, like I, I did see see some of that, though. I'm sure this is this like most of Shakespeare's plays. I'm sure it gets deeper with each rereading. There was one line that stuck out at me where the Duke talked about uh, how dare Angelo weed his vices while also cultivating Angelo's vices. And that which made me think, that, OK, so the Duke has something. There's something to the rumors of the Duke having a ton of bastards. Like the Duke has definitely like that, that, that is the, is there, am I misreading that? I, I think that that requires you to put a lot of stress on my, and I think that might be a general my, you know, how, you know, how we teachers are fond of just throwing ourselves in for examples. Like, you know, let's say I'm driving a hundred miles an hour in a 25 zone. We're not actually doing that. We're just saying that for the, I, that's the way I read that. I, I see no other evidence. The only other person who brings up rumors like this is, is Lucio who turns out to be, you know, <laughs> manifestly, contemptibly untruthful at all times. <laughs> okay, okay. So there's not necessarily, so it's not necessarily that the Duke has been the one who's been cultivating this immorality within the city. I don't think he has personally, although it is true he blames himself for the fact that it's been allowed to flourish, that he hasn't really had the heart to enforce it, the laws himself. Okay. Now, the, the tension between a perfect justice and a sort of unmerited mercy is definitely there at the heart of this play. I mean, there because I mean the 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 situation that, that that becomes the initial crux of the play. I mean, like I we we all feel we all feel sympathy for uh, for Claudio. I mean that in the sense that like he's there where plenty of people could be if not for circumstances, self restraint, and so on. Even then, he's like he's almost at the wedding day, and this all would have been fine. And it's really a technicality. Like we feel for him. We don't want there. There's no sense in which death makes sense there. And then to see, and I thought this was also there was also a lot of interesting commentary. I, I don't know if this is true. I've always heard this as a rumor. Uh, I've never actually done the digging to figure out if it's a true rumor or or just simply something that gets uh, repeated a lot. Uh, but there's a uh, there's at least a seminary rumor about uh, Luther and about Luther. Uh, saying if you actually got rid of all the brothels in 16th century Europe, people would go insane. <laughs> I, I don't know if he actually said that. It's the kind of thing that he might have said, I think. Like, it fits with his character, but I, I don't know that he ever actually said that. But this, too, also kind of points to, like, what were the circumstances of Shakespeare's day and, like, how common was... I think there's there's something there, too, about, like, the commonality of these different arrangements, too, that that this all was very plausible for him to write about it. Didn't, this is not the flight of fancy that is the Tempest in some way. Right. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true. I think a lot of these laws, I mean, remember in Shakespeare's time, the, the Puritans were on the ascendant mm. um, and Shakespeare's people, at least the, you know, the theatrical types in London were often at loggerheads with the Puritans. But I think even in, in non-Puritan controlled times, I think this has been yeah, the, the laws on this have really differed. I don't know precisely what the laws were in Shakespeare's time. I believe I've read that depending on the town almost, depending on the region, the force of an engagement would be different when it came to how binding it was. Um, like if you were in fact formally betrothed to someone in many places that was tantamount to marriage um, and had all the same rights. Not, you know, I don't like to get biographical, especially with Shakespeare, about whose biography we know so little. But there is, you know, one of the few things we do know is that um, his first child arrived considerably less than nine months after his marriage to Anne Hathaway. So um, there's there's something there where, you know, this is this is something with which Shakespeare has some experience. But I, th I think basically what you're getting at is why is this a play about laws governing sexual mores, right? Like, what? what why is that the the crux of the play? Is that... Well, kind of, but I mean, I mean that that too is something that 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 even that question is itself something that's. Uh, I mean, I think that that's always something that has been part of. 
uh, human civilization. I mean, as you go back as far back as Hammurabi's code, and there are laws governing what happens to the adulterer, what happens to, um, I don't think Hammurabi's code addresses fornication, but uh, that distinction is made in Levitical codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, that's, that's a, as long as we have a civilization, I mean, this was possibly Freud's helpful insight that there there is a lot of civilizational energy that's put into kind of policing and defining here is what proper sexual conduct is and here is what improper sexual conduct is and different societies go to different lengths to police Mm -hmm. those but uh, every society that i know of has formal rules that kind of define those parameters oh absolutely yeah and and what's interesting now that you mentioned i hadn't hadn't really thought about this but now that you mentioned it unlike for instance murder where there's always both a strong moral taboo against it and a legal taboo the alignment is not perfect when it comes to sexuality where there's always moral rules governing it and there's always social mores that that have to do with every single society no exceptions across the board there are mores um, governing sexuality because again it is something that is it's so important it's so it's it's held in common by all of humanity it has the power to create life i mean everything about it just just cries out for some sort of uh some sort of stricture and direction for that kind of of power that humans have, but the, whether or not that goes into legal force is varied widely, even within a given civilization. And so the, the actual codified laws don't necessarily line up with the social mores. Isn't there, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, doesn't he have a, he talks about why fornication is intrinsically wrong and also why he would not make it illegal if he. Well, which, and and I, I don't know, I don't know Aquinas enough to by any means to put words in his mouth, but I suspect there's probably something like this play or like, like the character of Claudio in mind there where Aquinas is thinking about like, if we actually did police this, like what would it take to police this? And the majority of people would be imprisoned in one way or another. It's, it's unenforceable in a way. But like that's that's another place where I, I really enjoyed this play. They're like they're never no one in this play attempted to say that immoral actions were in fact moral. Like everyone who gets caught is yes. recognizing, yep, I screwed up. That's and, true. And the only disagreement is the the people who are really hawks on enforcement of of these laws against fornication and, and the people who actually I if you don't mind, I pulled out a couple of quotes on this point sure. just because I thought it was interesting. Uh, when Lucio is talking to the Duke in in disguise. They're talking about Angelo and Lucio, who is kind of a, a libertine himself. He, we find out later that he's actually also fathered a child out of wedlock. He says, a little more lenity to lechery would do no harm in him that is an Angelo. Something too crabbed that way, Friar. And the Duke says, it is too general a vice and severity must cure it. And Lucio says, yes, in good sooth, the vice is of a great kindred. It is well allied, but it is impossible to extirp it quite, Friar, till eating and drinking be put down. And so working with the same data, the, the, you know, the friar and Lucio have come to different conclusions. The friar says, because the vice is general, that is everybody in town seems to be participating, we really need to you know, pull out the stops. This needs to be enforced. And Lucio says, it's so general that this is all of humankind. Everybody who eats and drinks is subject to this. And so you can't actually prevent this. There's nothing you can do legally that would, that would uh, I think there's a part early on in the play where they say, you know, if you actually enforce this rule, you'd have to send out for more citizens eventually because you'd run out if you started cutting off all the heads of people who were who are having sex outside of marriage. For all that, we we probably could go back and forth about the the uh, depictions of sexuality in this play and the ways that it interacts with the laws. Uh, but I want to kind of get your thoughts on something a little bit different here. I mean, we've we've talked about literature before. I know you think I have a, uh, a, a I tend to have a focus on sexuality in literature. Oh yeah, in fact, I'm eighty percent sure you only started this podcast so you could talk about sex and books. Uh, no, actually, it was more. Yeah, anyway, no, that was not why why I started the podcast. Uh, but the I I think what I've at least come to be convinced about is that so far every book that I've read that has something about sexuality in it that is a serious weighty worthwhile book we're not talking about things like 50 shades of gray or like porn masqueraded as literature or something like that but if it's an actual like weighty book the sex is never the point the sex is always symbolic or representative of something else now these key plot points in measure for measure they turn on questions of virginity, prostitution, fornication, and bastards. But this play isn't really about that. Like, what do you, why would Shakespeare kind of go for this material? Or like, what is the moral question of the play that he's using sexuality to bring to the forefront? I mean, I think it's, it's sort of what we were beginning to talk about is 
he, this, this play is so self-evidently about justice and the apparent but possibly not real conflict between justice and mercy. Mm-hmm. And, and so he really needs an offense that will be understandable to everyone, not just a few people who have a particular predilection towards a particular vice, but to everybody. And he needs something that, it, and because of that, it'll, it'll garner some sympathy for people on both ends. Everybody has a certain sense of shame surrounding sex, even in our in our so modern and enlightened age that we've you know done our best to do away with all those. Everybody still has a certain sense of shame about sex, and yet everybody still has a sex drive. And so it's a conflict that Shakespeare knows he's hitting in every single person in that audience. He knows he's going to be hitting very close to home in a way that, like again, Lucio mentions eating and drinking. I guess gluttony could potentially be in the same category, but it does not play as well on stage. <laughs> I think only Falstaff is the one who, and even he talks a lot more about sex than food. Um, so I think I think Shakespeare is really trying to hit, it's not the lowest common denominator, it's the most common common denominator. It's it's This is something across the board that people will understand both the shame and the impulse. And mm-hmm. so they'll understand Claudio and they'll also understand Isabella. I think we are probably less inclined to understand Isabella than Claudio in, in our age, but I think even even now there's a lot of both of those characters in everybody who's going to be watching this play. Let's go to Isabella for just a moment. Um, this is the scene where she and Claudio are talking in, in prison. I found her defense of virginity was absolutely fascinating. I think it's something that is the hardest for us in the 21st century after the sexual revolution to really resonate with. Um, But she holds this up as something that is so crucial to who she is. It's her core. It's the core of her identity. It's her honor. It's her integrity. And if she gives it up willingly, uh, then she is also giving up her eternal salvation. If I'm reading this correctly. Mm -hmm. Then Isabel, this is Isabel speaking of herself. Then Isabel lived chaste and brother die more than our brother is our chastity. I'll tell him yet of Angelo's request and fit his mind to death for his soul's rest. She believes that when she goes and tells her brother about this request, that her brother will obviously agree. Of course, your chastity is worth more than my life. I will die. You should, you should not give in to this. And I just found her, her, and then she holds true to that uh, in the, uh, on, in the next scene. Her brother says, sweet sister, let me live. What sin you do to save a brother's life. Nature dispenses with the deed so far that it becomes a virtue. I thought here, Claudio is becoming our sort of uh, contemporary. If you do an evil thing for a good purpose, the, the end justifies the means saving me is important. So it's okay. This vice becomes a virtue. She responds, oh, you beast, oh, faithless coward, oh, dishonest wretch. Wilt thou be made a man out of my vice? Is not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? What should I think? And she go, they go on back and forth. Like her in her her intense protection of her virginity, I thought was absolutely fascinating. What are what what are, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I know this is this is something that actually, as you say, for for young people now, for really anybody now, this is one of the most troubling things. Is this makes her come across as as overly cold to us moderns, because is it really that big of a deal? And I'd say there's there's two sides to this. One is you have to understand, um, we do a really bad job as moderns of imagining that people can truly believe things that we don't believe. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very hard for us to project ourselves into the mind of a true believing Christian in that era who would think that this is you know, a risk to her immortal soul. This is something that could potentially you know, leave her, leave her in hell for all eternity. Um, if you start to believe in those terms, all of a sudden, what she's saying makes a lot more sense. But that said, even so, you'll notice that um, a good indicator, if you need a barometer for what makes sense in Shakespeare's time, look at what the other characters think of this. And as with most of the issues we're talking about in this play, the characters are split. There's a pretty even divide between characters who sort of agree with Isabella and characters who sort of are like, aren't you being a little bit harsh? Can't you make an exception in this one case? Claudio, obviously an interested party, is you'll notice he's not saying it's fine, it's fine. What he's saying is, would Angelo be doing this if it weren't fine? I mean, he's so wise. Would he be risking his soul if it were really? And so, you know, it sounds sophistic to us. And obviously he's he's arguing for his life here. But you'll notice the ground of his argument is not 
it's not a big deal to have sex with somebody you're not married to. His, his point is saying like, man, maybe it's not a big deal after all, because this guy who's smarter than us seems to be acting as though it's not. Hmm. So I think, I think, yeah, there's characters who are going to be siding with scared Claudio and there's characters who are going to be siding with Isabella, but you'll notice even Claudio, once Isabella is gone and that momentary fear is gone, he feels terrible and he wants to ask for her pardon. And, um, and it, it clearly is, he knows that he's not been arguing in good faith. Well, that's I know that fast, so fascinating in part because the rest of like Isabella's character later on, she is still very concerned with her brother and she will participate in some slightly shady things in order to rescue him eventually. I mean, she does set up Mariana and Angelo and mm-hmm. she, she arranges that that doesn't bother her, but it's, it's, there's something so personal about this request that it violates her faith on a deep integral level that she will not do. And, and there's something really interesting about the, a faith that will not, will not sin to save another and yet is not that's not i don't think the text is presenting that as a sort of pride she's not self-righteous she just will not do an evil deed to accomplish a good end and i think i think that is actually she and angelo are sort of this interesting pair in that those are the two characters who seem like they are most focused on the law and they best have an eye for justice and for them, mercy, you know, Isabella argues eloquently in favor of mercy, but you can tell from the beginning of her argument with Angelo, when she first meets Angelo, she's not, you know, she, she doesn't want to make it seem like she wants justice to be circumvented at all. When she shows up the first time, this would be in Act 2, Scene 2, I want to say. When she first shows up, she says, I have a brother is condemned to die. I do beseech you, let it be his fault and not my brother, that is you know, execute the sin, don't execute the sinner. And Angela says, condemn the fault and not the actor of it. Why every fault's condemned ere it be done. Mine were the very cipher of a function. That is, I would have no meaningful job to find the faults whose fine stands in record and let go by the actor. That is, if I let people off for, for committing this kind of crime, what's my role as, as the keeper of justice? And then Isabella, this is the beginning of her entreaty for her brother's life. She says, oh, just but severe law. I had a brother then heaven keep your honor and turns to go. She says, all right, that's the answer I was expecting. You're right. She basically agrees with Angelo right out of the gate that, you know, justice is so important that as much as she personally wants Claudio to be pardoned, she doesn't want to circumvent justice to do it. And later on, she has similar words where she says, you know, there's a big difference between real mercy and the sort of cheating that, that you're proposing, Angelo, where you have to, you have to buy, you know, sort of a quid pro quo redemption here. And so I think Isabella and, and Angelo at his best are both these people who are laser-like focused on justice and mercy to them is a sort of a, a leak in justice rather than a perfection of justice. So with that in mind, what's happening with Angelo and this request or this, 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 uh, where, where does Angelo's corruption come from? Or should we read this as some, something like, he is suddenly so overtaken with love slash lust that he just sort of offers this as an out. And uh, it's sort of a, uh, this is the madness of falling in love kind of idea. Or is there something else happening here? What's going, where, why does Angelo change from this? Uh, and you're, you're, it sounds like you're reading him as sort of a bloodless angel, but mm-hmm. then suddenly he goes to the, almost the opposite extreme where he is this corrupt politician who will himself give up the, the good of the law in exchange for the service that he wants. And, and I, yeah, you're, I think you're exactly right that there's this sort of abrupt and sudden shift here. Um, we find out later from Angelo's past that maybe it wasn't so abrupt and sudden, but there's this apparent, as far as the audience knows, shift from Angelo being, as you say, bloodless to Angelo being able, he's obsessed with Isabella and he can't think about anything else. Um, And he's willing to, you know, he's willing to totally contravene his entire, um, you know, his entire sense of self in order to to be with her. I think Shakespeare sets us up to think that this is maybe, this is the bug in the system. If your system runs solely on justice, if your entire, you know, reason for getting out of bed in the morning is making sure that justice is scrupulously upheld, then you'd better be very, very you'd better be perfect. You can't be liable to temptation. And this is actually, this comes up throughout the play. When everybody's arguing for mercy for Claudio, the, the argument they all use without exception, as far as I can tell, is 
uh, let me hear all here's a Isabella when she's arguing she says if he had been as you and you as he you would have slipped like him that is if you'd been in Claudio's circumstances you would have done exactly the same thing but he like you would not have been so stern that is if he were judging you he would have understood he understands what it's like to fall he understands this this uh, concupiscence, he understands this intent, this inclination to sin. Go to your bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it doth know that's like my brother's fault. If it confess a natural guiltiness such as is his, let it not sound a thought upon your tongue against my brother's life. If you can find anything in yourself that resembles what Claudio did, then you can't really let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? You can't really uh, go around pronouncing judgment and Angelo's point is, yes, I absolutely can, because there's nothing in me like that. I'm better than that. And, and so this is pride going before a fall. And Angelo even admits that he's always prided himself on the, the blamelessness of his life so far. And so when it comes down to it, and he actually is for the first time presented with temptation, he admits that he's never understood why people love. Ever till now, when men were fond, I smiled and wondered how. But he, he finds that in Isabella's case, he's susceptible to this because mostly because he thought he wasn't susceptible to anything. Oh, cunning enemy that to catch a saint with saints dost bait thy hook. It's, it's a really, it's an impressive temptation scene, you know, and this is, this is Shakespeare being Shakespeare, but he, he really draws you into what Angelo is tempted by. And the reason he's vulnerable to this temptation is precisely that he thinks he isn't, he thinks he's perfect. All right, you're 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 winning. You're making me want to go back and reread the play again. I, I, I think like... I might. I think I might later this week. So I, I kind of wish. Don't you think there should be a like a recent movie of this? They made a movie of Titus Andronicus, which is a really two bit cut rate play compared to Measure for Measure. But I don't. I don't think there's been a movie of this lately. Uh, well, I mean, there, there may not have been a movie, but there was some real life news headlines. I mean, as, as I was reading this, I was thinking of Harvey Weinstein and the uh, all the events of 2017 and the hashtag Me Too movement. I mean, I think there's on a totally different level, because I, I think you're you're persuading me that I misread this play on initial reading. And there's a lot more about justice and mercy here. I read this primarily in terms of uh, here is a man with power who... Uh, used his power in an attempt to get a sexual favor and was ultimately frustrated by the presence of the king or the duke in this case from accomplishing that goal. I mean, I was it just it took me back to all the stories about Harvey Weinstein exchanging uh, favors for girls having places in his movies and so on and kind of all of that going up, which I mean, I do think that's here in this play as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it too is capitalizing on the relationship between power and the exchange of services for for goods that the powerful can give the powerless mm -hmm. but i think you've got some really interesting thoughts about um mercy and i think um i wonder if we can kind of shift to reading this in light or maybe kind of side by side with uh, portia and her speech in merchant of venice because this isn't the only place that shakespeare explicitly deals with that theme of mercy i mean there's the famous soliloquy I, I, I don't know if you can recite it, but the quality I, of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place below. <laughs> it is twice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that speech. Exactly. Like Shakespeare has a, an, a concern to, I mean, he brings up that whole thing. Cause in that, in that scene, and it's been years since I've read or taught that one, but if I remember correctly, Shylock has written a correctly executable contract and the one who has violated the contract owes him a pound of flesh and Portia is there trying to get Shylock to show mercy. He is perfectly within his rights to execute the contract and she wants him to be more noble and to choose mercy. Yeah. I think that's a really great parallel to draw. And I'm, I, yeah, I, I kind of wish I had thought of that. I, I would have reread Merchant of Venice too. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good parallel because it's a similar thing where the Duke is trying to give Angelo every chance everybody's trying to give Angelo every chance to be merciful. And they're all using that same argument where they're saying you, this could happen to you. You could be in Claudio's place. And Angelo keeps insisting, no, it couldn't happen to me. Um, and it is, it's, it's the same thing. Shylock ends up getting, getting hoist on his own petard um, because he insists on enforcing the letter of the law. And so Portia says, okay, well, here's the letter of the law. It's flesh, just flesh, no blood, no tendons, no nothing. And if it's more than a pound or less than a pound, then, then you've you know, murdered someone and you'll be liable for that. So she, you know, again, it's a technicality, but it's basically saying, if you choose the law, you get judged by the law. 
if you choose mercy, then mercy is shown to you. That's the name of the play here. It's measure for measure. It's directly from um, Matthew 7. It's the, the judge not lest you be judged passage. It's the, you know, take care of the beam in your own eye before you pick the moat out of someone else's. All of this is about what the root of mercy is. And the root of mercy is the realization that you yourself are human and fallible. And so if you arrogate to yourself the power of divine judgment, well, get ready for divine judgment. You put on the uh, the show notes uh, here, the uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's one of my favorite parables from the Gospel of Matthew. That's a, it's the story of the servant who uh, owes his, he owes his Lord a, uh, a massive uh, unpayable amount of money the modern equivalent of a, uh, a lower class employee owing millions and millions of dollars and the uh, the master forgives him his debt and at which point the um, then the, the next movement of the parable has that servant go to another servant who owes him the equivalent of five bucks and he's ready to throw this guy in debtor's prison have his hands cut off like sell your children into slavery so you can pay me my five dollars and it's when the king then finds out about this, about how the servant who he forgave responds, that he responds in rage. What parallels do you see between that parable and measure for measure? Where, where do you see those two connecting? They're both talking about what it is to be a human, you know, in a polity with other humans, where some, some people have a certain amount of power and temporal authority over other people. And the way they wield that power could be two ways. And the way that that the Duke orchestrates to show everyone by the end of the play is an understanding that you are in this middle position. You are to your underlings in the world as God is to you eventually. There will be coming along someone who knows everything you've done. There will be coming along a perfect judge who has perfect justice on his side. And you are in this intermediate position where you can give some share of that, that, that justice and mercy that you can find some way of balancing that even when it's impossibly difficult as in this play, or you can just go ahead and say, you know, I'm, I'm going whole hog on my conception of justice. Um, and so I, I think in, in both those cases, what the parable is showing you is whatever limited temporal authority you have now, you have to wield with the understanding that you are going to be answerable to that, to something much more perfect, to a much more perfect authority at some point. There's a really wonderful Isabella speech. Do you mind if I read really quick? From, oh, please do. Um, this is a good one for all y'all school administrators to read as well every day before school. Could great men thunder as Jove himself does? Jove would, Jove would ne'er be quiet. For every pelting petty officer would use his heaven for thunder, nothing but thunder. Merciful heaven, thou rather with thy sharp and sulfurous bolt splits the unwedgeable and gnarled oak than the soft myrtle. But man... Proud man dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make the angels weep, who with our spleens would all laugh themselves mortal. Just to do a quick poor paraphrase. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just, <laughs> that's, that's poetry that stands up with, with any of the, the passages that, that get quoted all the time. But, but basically, you know, you person in authority, you are dressed in brief authority your essence is glassy. That is, your essence is like a mirror. Everything you do in authority mirrors God's authority. But you, the way you handle your authority is like an angry ape. Apes, you know, they're, they're known for mimicking what they see humans do. And so you're, you're God's ape. You're just a mimic of God. And so when you see lightning, you think, ooh, now that I have power, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let loose with all this lightning. Whether I am, you know, the governor of a state or I'm, a, I'm in charge of this particular parking lot, I'm going to use my little brief authority for thunder and I'm going to make everybody who answers to me scared of me. And that's what Isabella sees in Angelo. She sees him, she sees in him a fallible person that almost no one else in the dukedom sees. And, and she sees him as somebody who is so in love with using his authority that he wants to make his, his mini heaven uh, all thunder. He would use his heaven for thunder, nothing but thunder. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in uh, Lewis's magician's nephew, where, um, Diggory uh, is asking, he asks Aslan something and Aslan's response is, uh, you are, no, 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 this is not, this is not a magician's nephew. This is in Prince Caspian. It's when, uh, it's at the end of the book when Caspian wants to know if he can be like the Telmarines and go on to another world. And Aslan tells him, uh, you are a son of Adam. Uh, that is enough glory, 
to raise the uh, the lowest beggar's head and enough shame to bow the proudest emperor's brow. And that in that moment for, for Lewis and in that moment for the character, uh, being human is simultaneously this incredibly glorifying thing, but it's also got so much such shame wrapped up in it that it should be exactly. this constant tension between pride of accomplishment and humility because you know that even the greatest accomplished human is still a sinner. Exactly. And that's, and that's such a concern for Shakespeare in, in so many of the plays, um, especially all the ones that, that treat with something really serious. In so many of the plays, he talks about that sort of man as an, you know, the, the excellent worm uh, idea of, of man, where we're, we're both beast and angel and we're neither beast nor angel. Like there's something incredibly noble about the human condition. There's also something incredibly fallen about the human condition. The, I mean, it's the, in Hamlet, right? The quintessence of dust speech. That's the really kind of crystalline version of this, but it's it's all over the place. And here he's really getting into depth. Um, he's really going into detail about how that works when it comes to justice on earth. Do you mind if I use this as a jumping off point into my crazy idea about this play that you can totally edit out and listeners can totally not listen to because this is crazy? Before you do that, I want to draw okay. one other point that I was thinking of there. And then I'm going I'm to hear your crazy idea. Odds are very low that I will edit it out. Is it fair to say that if there is a singular point to this play, which there might be many points to this play, but if there is a point to this play, that it is the reality of universal sin should produce a rec- and it should produce a sort of a level of universal mercy and as opposed to uh, universal legalism. And I know I'm using universal there a lot, but the the fact that, Every human is wrapped up in the kind of, if you're right about why Shakespeare reaches for sex in this play, because he wants something, a universal vice, and that every person, in as much as he can see himself in potentially Claudio or Juliet's situation, then you're like, that could be me. I've been shown mercy. I should respond to others with mercy rather than, well, what we really need is a bunch of Angelos who can just give us pure unmetered justice and righteousness and kill every sinner everywhere. Well, you know that I'm going to have to resist anything that says there's a V point of the play. I will definitely agree with you that legalism does not come off well in this play because it comes off as unworkable on earth. It also comes off as not something that would be desirable for anyone on earth, because again, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God, not said literally in the play, but it is said in every single, you know, it's, it's, it's an undertone throughout the play. So yeah, legalism does not come off well. You can't, not even Angelo at the end of the play wants the law to be enforced because he knows what it would mean for him. And he's grateful for the intercession of his former fiance, Mariana, and eventually in a great plot twist that I'm now spoiling, Isabella intercedes for him, which is, I think, uh, a bigger part of the play than, it, we probably should have talked about it more. I think it's a more important part of the play um, than I had thought the first couple times I read it. There's, if there's any sort of pride, self-righteousness in Isabella's character, it probably gets overturned in her willingness to then go plead for exactly. the very one who was orchestrating her demise earlier. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's why, if we want to get back to the Duke in a second, I think that's why you can sort of get the Duke off the hook for keeping Claudio's, uh, at, at that point, when Isabella is pleading for Angelo's life, she thinks that Claudio is dead. She thinks that Angelo has has uh, tried to sleep with her and thinking he slept with her, gone back on the deal anyway and had her brother killed. She thinks that her brother is dead and that Angelo has cheated in every way you can cheat. And she's still willing to plead for his life. It's sort of the ultimate praying for one's enemy. And only after that moment do you have this sort of, you know, quasi-resurrection scene where you get Claudio back. He's this, this great unveiling, literal unveiling where a hood gets taken off of his head and all of a sudden there's Claudio still alive. And only at that moment does Isabella find out that. So even in the throes of her despair, she's willing to pray for Angelo's life. Yeah, I think that is, that's sort of the end of Isabella's arc. I think that's that's perhaps the last time she speaks actually is when she's begging for Angelo's life. She certainly doesn't respond to the Duke's uh, <laughs> informing her that they're going to get married. So I think I think that's that's the end of Isabella's you know spoken character is is that she finally understands mercy in a way that I don't think she did the first time we see her when she's pleading for Claudio's life. Yeah. So in that sense, if we not that we need to do this, but if we wanted to apply the uh, the standard of a, a of a modern novel to a Shakespearean drama, I mean that does the protagonist experience a substantive personal psychological change? And, and we could read the play in that sense that it is about 
these various characters and kind of their growth and their changes, like you see that over the course of these five acts. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the difference between this and a philosophical treatise. You could write yourself a thought experiment that said, hey, what if justice and mercy came into conflict? And you could write for, for books and books and books about that. In fact, I think Aristotle probably has at some point or other. Plato has the laws, right? That's what the laws are about. <laughs> so, also like, what the, and also the Republic, but you, you yeah, you, right, you exactly. So, and you're like, we still don't know what justice is, <laughs> right? Exactly. And in this play, I think that's also the case. We still don't know what justice is. I don't think I don't think Shakespeare is uh, is so proud, and I don't think he thinks he's he's infallible to the point where he can say, look, this is justice, and this is how mercy relates to justice. But he points us in the direction of the questions. And he also gives us characters to care about. And he also shows us those characters changing, which is why this is successful as a drama, as well as, as a, um, you know, as a thought experiment, as a philosophical exercise. But yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. You do see, you see Angelo getting much better than he deserves. And then you see Isabella changing in this, you know, she didn't need to change that much, but she does. And she's given that opportunity. And it seems like a lot of what the Duke is doing behind the scenes is making all this possible. He makes Angelo's real repentance possible. He makes uh, Isabella's, you know, uh, willingness to to plead for mercy even for her worst enemy in the world. He makes that possible. He orchestrates it so that can happen. He even makes it so Lucio, this you know, this good for nothing guy, he has a chance to uh, to Funny plead though. for. Yeah, right. He he has a chance to to plead for plead for mercy, and even after you know it's revealed that the guy he's been trashing <laughs> for for a whole act now is really the Duke. He still says, oh, I, you know, you know how I talk. I was just a joke. He's not, he's impenitent at the end and he gets what he deserves. So I think a lot of this is the Duke. Like I see some similarities here to the Tempest where most of the Tempest is Prospero trying to orchestrate a free will repentance from a lot of the characters who have done him wrong. Here it's the Duke making it so every character has the chance to ask for mercy, has the chance to offer mercy, um, has the chance to come to some sort of moral improvement from where they started at the beginning of the play was that your crazy idea i mean my crazy idea is a lot more strongly stated where i think that the duke is really god that's my <laughs> I, I, that's, that's what I'm like. you're, you're almost saying that and yeah you're, you're almost um uh, when's the last time you read brideshead revisited i'm actually reading it right now <laughs> so, ah! uh, this is my second time through i think but yeah i'm, I'm reading it now and uh what what, what made you think of it well, I, I just finished listening to uh, John Miller's Great Books podcast with, uh, I don't remember the, his guest name, but he had a, a female scholar on who was talking about Brideshead Revisited. And she kind of made went to particular efforts to talk through the Catholic redemptive shape of Brideshead Revisited. And the way you were describing the attention to every person having the ability to ask for mercy made me think of that the ending of Brideshead Revisited, where you kind of get that very specific, that, that scene where um, uh, Lord Marchmain is yes. dying. And yes. I think yeah. he has like 18 different opportunities to have a priest come give him final rites. And he rejects the first 17. And like, yes. the, the, and the most teary eyed moment of the book is when he like, does he like, all he can do is nod at that point, right? Like I think it doesn't he make a sign of the cross? He or is that himself? Yeah. But he like he's he has one last moment and just the idea that the I don't know, the the reprobate at the end of his days who has rejected his faith his entire his whole adult life, but that he he too is um it's in another parable. It's the uh it's the parable of the uh the 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 laborers and their payment yes. where like the yes. some, they they all they all agree to work for the lord for a certain amount of money and some people work eight hours some people work 10 minutes and they all get the same payment i mean he's right. the guy who works about 10 seconds and gets the reward well and you're you're skipping the you're bearing the lead here the lead parable here is uh is luke 15 right it's the prodigal son this is it's the i think those are are they back to back? Are they in the same uh, little? No, no. I'm sorry. That lost, lost coin is the is the one at the end of. Oh. But in any event, yeah. The, the point is the same. Where you do have this attention to, um, you can always right up until Judgment Day, <laughs> you have this opportunity. Right up until the day you die, you have the opportunity to to honestly repent, and that's a huge, huge part of Christianity. That's a that's so central to Christianity is that you know it's not. It's not the legalism that that Angelo seems to think right. the world runs on. In fact, it's not the legalism that Isabella maybe thinks the world runs on at the beginning as well. Um, and they both have to come. They're coming from you know much different places, but I think they they both have to come to that realization that there is 
there is, you know, as, as Aquinas would say, mercy is the perfection of justice. It's not the subversion of justice. Um, and so they're both gradually coming to that realization and it's all been orchestrated by the Duke. Which I will, I mean, so, well, I don't know. I'm not going to try to score cheap Calvinist points here, but it's, uh, it, it, it has to score. go for it. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it feel it's, it's got the feel of slight predestination behind it, but not the, the play doesn't really feel predestined, but it does the idea of that, that orchestration of events and like mm-hmm. playing it out is, is really interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think this is, you're going to have a add divine foreknowledge to the picture. Right. Well, and, and a lot of it is, you know, there are points at which the Duke is surprised. So I'm not saying this is a perfect parallel by any stretch, right. but where I would push back against it being pure predestination in what I believe is the Calvinist sense, although I've never totally understood the Calvinist sense of predestination, but um, another podcast for another day, <laughs> another, another, it's, it's the Duke is not determining events. He's, he's constantly leaving room for people to make their own free will decisions and different characters make do different things with their free will. Some of them use their free will well, Isabella does eventually. Some of them use it badly, Lucio uses it terribly. And some of them at the very last second use it, you know, even after they've, they're, they're like, they have damned themselves with their own judgment. And even then Angelo at the very end is penitent and recognizes what he's done wrong. And he actually says, I, you know, I deserve death. I think at this point you should kill me. Like that's all stuff that the Duke has left room for. He hasn't coerced anybody into this. He's letting them all make their decisions right up until the last possible second. A biblical Calvinism has room for all of that. Is a Good. if you have a predestination that's just kind of fixed as basically philosophical determinism, it doesn't. No one gets any choice. Right. But scripture doesn't actually show that. Uh, no. What what I think Scripture shows is a God who does has foreknowledge, does exist outside of time. And is complex to the extent that no choices people make can operate outside of his will. So yeah, exactly, his, and, and, he's and able the Duke to always work with that. Right. What you kind of the, see the situation is never out of control of the Duke in the play. It's never out of his control, but he's not going around doing all the actions. He's he's making it possible for people to act, and he he works through everyone else's means. Everybody from from Angelo down to the provost is is doing things that all work into the duke scheme but they're doing it of their own free will and they're taking his advice you know and, and they're taking his suggestions or they're rejecting his suggestions but they're all they're all working he he works through these minor actors in a way that again i find it really tempting to read this as shakespeare doing theodicy and i think shakespeare doing a lot more of an interesting theodicy even than you know even than milton who's famous for it i think i think it's also worth noting that the duke is apparently gone. He's apparently withdrawn from the world. He hasn't withdrawn from the world. He's entered the world in a in a sort of a a, a disguise that's emptied out of his obvious authority. He shows up as a friar, that is a beggar monk, right? <laughs> that's what that's how he inserts himself secretly back into the world here. Um, but he's given the appearance of having withdrawn. That's what first got me thinking about. You know, is the duke kind of a kind of a god figure here who has this moment of kenosis where he empties himself out of his obvious authority and is is working among the lowliest in Vienna I don't know I find it a pretty tempting image especially when the last scene is so like hammering home like this is when everything that was hidden is going to be revealed um the very last lines of the play actually I think I I hope I marked them I guess they're easy to find if they're the last lines bring us to our palace where we'll show what's yet behind that's meet you all should know it ends with you know a glancing reference to a marriage just so this can check the comedy box here and then he it talks about he talks about revelation this is an unveiling there's literally again the hood coming off of claudio the whole last scene is about unveiling these seemings and showing what's really going on mm-hmm. um, and it just strikes me as like this this play is one of the most overtly it's drawing most overtly on biblical themes i, I think we it was before the mic was on we were we were talking about i think i think measure for measure is the only title that is a scriptural quote Will, I think you, you've convinced me that Measure for Measure is far more complex and a far better play than I, I really gave it credit for. In Shakespeare's canon, where would you put this play? Uh, is it bad? Is it mediocre? Or is it a great play? Where would, how would you describe it? It is the best of its genre, which I realize is a total cough out, but the best strategy is King Lear. Hamlet nearly tied with it. But the best of the problem plays, as they call them, is Measure for Measure, and it's not close, I don't think. It, of the four plays that usually get cited as the problem plays that, or I guess three sometimes, the ones that kind of are officially comedies but leave a bad taste in your mouth, Measure for Measure is far and away the best one. Um, it's dealing with some themes that I find really interesting, but I think it's the best one dramatically too. So um, I'm going to say great with an asterisk because 
of this weird genre that Shakespeare seemed to like enough to do more than once, it is far and away the best one. Fantastic. Uh, well, Will, thank you so much for joining me on The Optimistic Curmudgeon for a great conversation about a great play. Listeners, thank you for joining us tonight. We hope that you were inspired to uh, go out and read Measure for Measure. As you've heard, it's a wonderful play with a lot of really interesting ideas and a lot of insight to offer us today. Uh, today, we still are trying to figure out what is the proper balance between justice and mercy. Measure for measure, if it offers us anything, offers us a reminder that uh, this side of eternity, we will always have an imperfect world, and we are better off uh, in a world filled with mercy rather than a world filled with pure justice. Will, any final thoughts? Go read Measure for Measure. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.